Hello and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Bow, clinical psychologist and coach, mother of two traumatic births myself. This podcast is all about helping the helpers, supporting the supporters and training birth workers to feel connected and confident to navigate birth trauma. A huge part of what I do is to uplift wounded healers and I know that there are so many of you. So I honour you for making some time for yourself right now. This podcast is also available in video format in places where people have said yes, you can see me as well as hear me. This is a new thing I'm trying. I like seeing faces, even if it means I have to get out of my pyjamas. So head on over to my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Erin Bow. And before we start, if you've been enjoying this podcast and you're listening on iTunes right now, which I know a lot of you are, can you hit pause for a second and leave me a super quick review? I really want these stories and support and messages of hope and growth to reach as many people who are interested in birth as possible. That's it. Reviews help the algorithm and then it gets shown to more people. It helps. And there's no money in it for me. This podcast is just my, you know, gift to you (laughs) and for me to have some, you know, temporary time out of mum life to talk to other grown-ups to, you know, bypass small talk conversation and get to really good juicy stuff, which I love. And I so, so, so value your support. It really keeps me going. And I love stories. This is why I do what I do. This is why I do this podcast. Sharing stories can be such soul medicine. And I really do believe that as healers and helpers, we cannot walk this path alone. We need support. We need a sounding board and a circle, either a physical one or a metaphorical one for storytelling. Storytelling is so important. What do you think of when you hear the word fistula? For me, it was 2004 and I was 21 years old. I was watching the Oprah show on my lunch break and she was interviewing Dr. Catherine Hamlin. The image I have in my mind when I think obstetric fistula is of a terrified, very young African woman who's labored for days without any support and is then ostracized from her community. Very generally speaking, an obstetric fistula is a hole where a hole shouldn't be between the vagina and rectum or bladder. It can be caused by prolonged or obstructive labor, leaving someone incontinent. We might not want to admit it, but sometimes we think of fistulas as something that doesn't really happen in Western hospitals. My guest today is someone who experienced such a birth injury in a hospital in the USA. Kristen Hill is a mental health counselor and mummer of two boys in Seattle. We talk about the feelings of patient blaming and scapegoating that goes on in birth. How it felt not finding any resources about fistula that particularly resonated. The re-traumatising process of making a complaint while feeling like her body had been hijacked. In sharing stories, we get our power back. We take ourselves out of isolation and shame. And not only do we become stronger, we uplift others to see their own beauty. And strength. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's um, we're at opposite ends of the day. I think it's night time for you, yeah. And it's a day earlier than you too, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a little ahead. Oh, I'm never. I'm rarely ahead in anything in life. So, <laughs> so I'll take that. I can relate. <laughs> oh my goodness! Shall we start? Do we want to start talking about you professionally or a bit more you personally? Where do you want to go with this? Because we've got so much yeah. potentially good gutsy stuff to get into today. Right. Do we want to tell people a bit about your, like, what do you do? What do you do? Sure. I can totally do that. Well, I am a mental health therapist in the Seattle area in Washington. Oh, um, oh go ahead. Were you going to say something? No. Sorry. Um, and I. I have been doing that for about 10 years, um, off and on kind of stopped when I became a mom and took a long break. Um, and just in the last about two and a half year, two years, I've begun to specialize more in perinatal, um, work and also birth trauma. And then, um, I do 
a, I volunteer with, uh, do you know Perinatal's uh, uh, Postpartum Supportive International? Are you familiar with that yeah. organization? So I volunteer with the local chapter in Washington here, and I am doing the Warm Line, which you might be familiar with, yeah. um, which is just moms have a number that they can call in that are local and they can get additional support and help or um, good referrals, resources, talk to someone who's been through what they've been through. Yeah. Um, and so I do that one week a month as well. Cool. Yeah, cool. that's kind of an overview of what, what I do. And I work part-time because I also have two little kids at home. So that's my other job. It's a juggle, isn't yeah. it? Like it it is. It's constant juggling. <laughs> it's, it's juggling like it's not even plates. I think it's just like machetes that are on fire and greased up. And yeah, I, I, I don't believe in this whole like balance. I think for these years, however long it lasts, there is no balance. It's just chaos. Right. And pockets of like, oh, that part was okay. Or I was on time for that bit. Like, yeah, it's a constant right. state of half-assing everything. <laughs> Basically, yeah, nothing's like 100% great. <laughs> Everything's halfway done. <laughs> yeah, so I guess if we think about, I know you wanted to talk about at least one of your births. Just one of your births, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, well, one of my births that's, uh, you know, applies to the trauma, like birth trauma, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to let sure. us in? Sure. Um, so five well, it's almost six. My son is almost six now. Mm. Um, and so almost six years ago I had him and my birth, um, it was generally like a typical, I guess you would say I had, I had midwives. Um, and I went into labor at like 40 weeks, you know, um, and it was kind of slow going and I, they sent me home and then my water broke at home. And still when I got there, it was like slow going. So I ended up kind of being a very, I, I guess what you would say your textbook hospital birth, where you get the whole Pitocin and then you get the epidural, just kind of all the things that. All the things. Yep. All the things that, you know, maybe we would like to avoid. Um, and that can kind of, you know, obviously muddy the waters with other, you know, with the birth process. Um, but I was naive. First birth, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just, don't, yeah. it's our first birth. You just don't know. You don't know until you know. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. You, you do your best, right? You read, yeah. you do classes, you do whatever, but you just really don't know. And, um, and so, I mean, I, I wouldn't say my whole, the whole from start to finish was insanely long. It was like a little over 24 hours, I think. Um, but towards the end, I was getting pretty tired. I was pushing for quite a long time. Um, and my son's heart rate, um, I've since got my birth records, which I just like encourage everyone to do like later when they're ready to look at their records, because it could just be helpful in processing. Cause you know, you just are so tired and you just don't really understand always what's going on. Um, and I actually recently got them not too long ago and they had kept saying to me during the birth that his heart rate was just a little iffy. I don't remember all the terms they used. Um, and so they were just kind of trying to keep an eye on that. And it just seemed, and I also had gotten a fever, which can happen if you get an epidural, but it can also happen if your waters broke for too long yeah. Yeah. and they don't know which comes first. So then they're monitoring the baby and thinking, well, what if they have a fever and everything, you know, it's just like everything becomes suddenly kind of more complicated. Yeah. And um, I was just really, really getting encouraged that we needed to have an intervention of some kind. And so they brought in an OB, a male OB who I'd never met. <laughs> and of course, right. And he was, you know, perfectly nice. Uh, and he said to me, I think this is kind of where things can start to feel difficult um, for women as they look back. Um, or maybe even in the moment too, although I didn't think of it in the moment that he was like, you know, if you don't get this baby out, you're going to have to have a C-section. Mm -hmm. And so, right. Like, I think a lot of women hear this kind of threat. Right. And so he was like, I'm going to use the vacuum and I'm going to do it three times. And if it pops off, you know, then you have to have a C-section. So of course in my mind, I'm like, well, that's the worst thing ever. Like, I don't want a C-section because, you know, that's what they, we kind of are trained to think like, oh, they're the worst thing ever to have a C-section. And so I 
pushed with all my might. And the second time my son came out and he was very big, which nobody had anticipated. Um, he was a uh, 9-11, so he's almost 10 pounds and he had a pretty large head. Um, and, you know, he was rushed up to the NICU actually about five seconds after I got to meet him because they oh, just wow. wanted to check on everything. And I was just out of it. And, you know, you're just out of it. You're exhausted. I didn't know kind of how I felt or what was really going on. And um, I remember I sent like everybody upstairs with the baby, just thinking like, oh, just go be with the baby. And I just remember I was laying alone in the hospital bed while I was getting stitched up. And the doctor, the OB said, to me at the time that I had, he was like, oh, you only had a second degree tear. Like he was so proud that it was, it was like, like, yeah. And, um, I just started thinking, okay, you know, like, I guess that's good. Um, and you know, and then after that, my son ended up being fine. Like he, he had to, you know, have some medic meds for it to save off any infection or whatever, but everything was fine. So basically after that, seemingly fine, after the first, you know, week and a half of being at home, things seemed fine. And then I started realizing that something wasn't right. Um, I started noticing that I had, I mean, to get kind of graphic, like a discharge that I wasn't familiar with, um, that wasn't just blood. And so I, um, kind of just called my midwives and told them about it. And then I started looking online and Googling, which can be scary. And yeah. I started really believing that I had an obstetric fistula. Yeah. And um, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, uh, it's when I hold, I, like, a, like a, basically a hole is created either in the like rectal mucosa or the kind of, I don't know, it's like the small, I don't even know all the terminology for it, it's but a hole where a hole shouldn't be, really, isn't it? What's that? It's a hole where a hole shouldn't be. Exactly. You either get a hole between your rectum and your vagina, or you get a hole like somewhere between like where your your urethra, like where you pee. Yeah. So it's women either get one or the other. And mine unfortunately happened to be between my rectum and my vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd never heard of any of this happening in my whole life. I'd never heard of a fistula. Um, and of course now I think we all know it's a third world country thing, mostly when you read about it, mm-hmm. but it does happen here. Apparently I, I can speak to that, um, I but I was oh, really Kristen, I think it is. Cause I think, um, like some of us are old enough, I suppose, to remember that episode with Catherine Hamlin and Oprah and like, Oh, that's interesting. But that's a thing that happens over there to other right. people who aren't us. Right. It's an us them thing that happens which then when it does happen, makes it even more like, oh my God, like what? Right, like what's wrong with me? Why did that happen to me if it happens to so few people, you know? It's it's a bizarre thing. And I think just, and I think this happens to a lot of women when they get, when something happens in birth that you don't expect or you don't know about, because you just feel shocked because we just don't talk about a lot of the sort of injuries that can happen in birth in general, even like fourth degree tears, you know? there's not a lot of conversation about what that really means when it happens to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I was just blindsided and kind of in shock. And, you know, my midwives were completely also in shock and really didn't know what to do with me other than to send me to the OB who I had, who had delivered my son. Mm -hmm. And when I went to see him, he, you know, again, your, your doctor is thinking about, uh, you know, any kind of responsibility on them and how much they can push that off of themselves. Mm. And he basically told me it was probably my fault that something (laughs) I had done when I was home. Oh, wow. And, um, how, how would that, like, how would you just go on about your day, give yourself a fistula? I wonder. Right. (laughs) He had mentioned pressure from going to the bathroom when I was home. Um, but he was very sure to distance himself from any sort of mistake on his part. Um, even in the notes that I read recently, he was very clear, like, 
my work looked good and clean and as if, as if it was healing, you know. That's really um, interesting language you've just used there too, like good and clean versus like dirty and shameful and all the yeah. stuff. Those with having an injury, a birth injury. Right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was very traumatized because yeah. obviously having a hole in that area of your body is yeah. not pleasant. Mm. Um, and it, it was a little bit smaller than the size of a quarter. Yes. So it wasn't very, it wasn't exactly that small. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and the thing about it is then you have to wait for your body to heal from birth before you can get a repair. And so for four months I was adjusting to being a new mom and also dealing with this bodily trauma yeah. where, you know, I just liken it to just like having a constant trigger that you carry in your body every day, mm -hmm. all day, where, you know, you have this traumatic event happen, the discovery of something, and then you're, you're just living in hypervigilant world constantly. Mm -hmm. Like when's the next, like, you know, when am I going to have to go to the bathroom? Like, what's that going to be like? Where am I going to be at? You know, mm -hmm. just constant hypervigilance, constant thinking about how I could have prevented it. Cause the blame was put on me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I took that in as like, I should have done something different. Um, and kind of replaying, you know, it's part of PTSD, right? We, we, yeah. we replay the event over and over. Um, and so I was just in a really high, heightened state of anxiety yeah. for about four months. And I didn't, you know, even as a therapist, I didn't, it never occurred to me, oh, you might have PTSD or, no. you know, you might have um, any kind of like postpartum, anything. Like it just yeah. never, because you know, when we're in it, you're just in it. You're not aware, really. You don't know where your nose is half the day. Like when you've got a baby, that really, I think even if you don't have any kind of diagnosable or otherwise something to label you with, that period is just so fraught with like checking and worrying and being startled and like just so many things go into that experience anyway that you then add on top of. I'm just like, yep, shell-shocked from my birth and don't even really have time to sit down and like process it, let alone anything right. else. Because you're just trying to figure out like, where did you put your car keys and there's somebody who needs me. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. It's so much just becoming a new mother, let alone adding any of that, you know, like body trauma that you have. And it, it's just, I think what, what, you know, when I look back, I think about nobody, none of my providers, you know, um, it was just like, no one was there to help guide me. And mm -hmm. like, emotionally, this is going to be really difficult yeah. and you might need some extra support, which when I look back, I'm like, that's crazy that no one said to me, wow, you had like something happened to you that was is really emotionally difficult and let's get you connected with someone who work you know who works mm -hmm. with that um which is again why i do that work now <laughs> because it's crazy to me that no one thought to do that um but four months was part of i had my first surgery um and surgeries in that part of the body and that sort of tissue are very tricky mm -hmm. and they're not always known to work 100 percent. so sort of the, sh the shorter version of the story is it didn't fully heal, it healed 90%. And then I, um, which is great because it was like a size of a pinpoint versus, you know, almost a quarter. But once you had that trauma, any feeling, any sensation, you're still living with, because you know it's still there, even yeah. though maybe I wasn't experiencing symptoms near as much. Um, I was still living in that, that space in my head. Um, of course. I imagine like just the terror of like even just being able to leave the house, like planning where's where's the toilet gonna be? Am I gonna be okay? Should I laugh? Should I cough? Like yeah, right. any of that. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just a const it was a constant worry that just sat in the back of my head. Um and I was I I am thankful I you know I have a very supportive family, husband, friends. Um, and I, I did sort of try to get out and be not just like sink into a hole, um, which I mean, I understand a lot of women do do, and I totally get that. Um, 
and I think that helped me from sinking, you know, deep mm -hmm. in. Um, but I didn't end up getting any sort of like therapy or any help until about a year out. Yeah. Um, and I honestly don't remember how, I, I think I was on my own. I realized, oh, hey, maybe I need to talk to someone. And I found a therapist who specialized in, um, in perinatal health mm -hmm. and maternal health and um, started working with her to kind of help me live with what I still had, you know, and, and, um, and just kind of figure out how to, yeah, how to live with everything. And which is just like, it's so it's criminal, really, that we put so much pressure onus on like people who've just given birth to figure out what it is yeah. that they need, go find it. Ask right. be in a position again, like thinking like, well, you've got right. a baby, you've got to leave the house. Like I just, it's such a, in some ways when I talk to um, students and registrars that I work with, like even in Australia, like the joke so much of, um, you know, when therapists are sort of like smacked over the hand, so to speak, because their clients don't turn up and they're late. And it's just this massive joke to me of like, yeah, they have babies. They don't sleep. Right. Like to think right. is it even safe for you to get in your car and drive to an appointment today? Right. Like who's right. gonna help you with the pram? It's like just all the different factors that go into like I think sometimes people forget how much effort it really is for someone yeah. to get to an appointment. It is. If they even just got through the door and went, Oh my god, I'm here and that's all I can manage. Like, hooray, you did it. Like mm -hmm. it's just it's so much effort for them to just call, you know, yeah. to make the appointment. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've learned from working on the warm line that if, if, you know, them just calling you one time, if you don't call them back or immediately, or if, you know, if they don't get like, maybe the first person they referred to is full, they're not going to keep fighting many no, times. No way. No way. Even, you yeah. know, like I think about myself with my first baby and breastfeeding issues and whatever else. And someone's saying to me, oh, I want you to go and see this GP who specializes in breastfeeding. Oh, but it's Christmas. It's a wee six week wake up. No, yeah, forget about it. Done. Forget about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it's too overwhelming. It, and it doesn't, it, 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 it's um, the system. I mean, clearly you guys are experiencing it as well in Australia. Like it's just completely broken and there hasn't been enough um, education with our OBs mm. um, specifically, I think around how to support women who have had birth, you know, that was traumatic or who are, you know, experiencing a PMAT, like a, a, mm. a mood disorder from birth. There's just a gap. I'm noticing it. I mean, you see it too. I'm sure I see it all the time. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with anyone. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that that was very much the case for me and my midwives even didn't, you know, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, and especially the OB, you know, wanted to distance himself, I think. So, um, yeah, it's hard to have to be your own advocate when you're in it. Oh, um, I know, so. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's just unfair for any woman to have to do that. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I'm just trying to think, I, I ended up kind of planning after a lot of different doctors visits appointments you know after a second surgery that failed to try to have another baby before we do a final surgery yeah and um so i lived with the 90 percent healed fistula for a, a total time of um four four years four and a half years um yeah, four years. And then I, and I had a second baby, which actually I ended up opting to have a C-section yeah. to reduce any trauma. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's another thing. As well, it's worth mentioning, like, as you yeah. said, C-sections are not evil. Like, no, because we have them. And in some cases they really help mentally, physically, yes. everything. Yes. And I think that's a good point, you know, to say that Yes, we want birth that's, you know, not intervened with all these different things in the hospital because they, they do create other problems. But then on the other, the other side of it, if you do have a severe tear, 
Um, I mean, I've read a lot of stories that are horrifying about women who've had fourth degree tears who then were still encouraged to have vaginal births and, mm-hmm. you know, and then their, you know, that muscle, their rectal muscle is like completely done for. And they have, you know, no ability, they have incontinence. Mm-hmm. And if someone would have just said, have a C-section, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, and so I'm thankful that, you know, I kind of had, I kind of learned that, okay, I have to be my own advocate. I had a really great therapist who had a relationship with the hospital that I switched over to and knew kind of all the providers. And she helped Mm me have a team of people um, who like I had, you know, my, I had a a surgeon who was going to, you know, potentially um, be at my birth if needed, you know, if I went into labor and had to have a vaginal birth last minute or something, but someone who was going to be there. And then my, um, my OB was incredible and extremely supportive. We made sure that any staff person or nurse that was working with me before and after knew my story so that I didn't have to repeat anything prior to it or, you know, kind of that there was just this sensitivity of like this needing to kind of be a, a good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my birth VSC section was ama- amazing <laughs> yeah. and my healing was actually great and fine and not there. I had no issues. And so I look at the C-section as like being a really healing experience for me. And I, mm-hmm. I, I worry, I think sometimes about the push of like natural home births, which I think are also great. And obviously we know statistically their bet, I think they, they do, they are overall better, um, for the health of mothers, but there are also these other, you know, aspects of women needing to prevent their body from further, you know, injury. Yeah. Uh, It's about choice and about if we believe that statement that, you know, it is definitely so much more than a healthy baby. Yes. Not just shooting for a healthy baby. Then we need to consider all the other factors. Choice is a huge, huge choice. Yeah, choice. And, you know, I even think about the choice to, you know, when you're in the, in the moment giving birth and someone's like, you know, I got to use this, you know, a vacuum or a forcep versus a C-section. There's not even any conversation about risk to you and your body. It's kind of all about the baby at that point. Mm. And it's like, wait, let me know. I, I like to, I don't know what I would have done if I, you know, been given. No, I don't think anyone would have said you might have a fistula from this, but like, mm. you know, I could have had a much worse tear and no one talked to me about that when I was making that decision. Mm. And, and so there just needs to be much more information around, given, obviously we know more information given to women when they're having to make a choice yeah. um, that involves them thinking about their body and what it's going to do to them. Um, as much as our babies who we want to be healthy and obviously not hurt in birth. Um, yeah. But I think, and I, I will always say, and I think I'll say until the day I'm like not even able to utter words anymore. Like it's, it's not like the top thing to shoot for. Like that's the baseline, like baseline yeah. is the healthy baby. Like that's the floor. Like let's not sort of just aim for like, oh, the minimum. Exactly. So, 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 so much more that we can be not just like asking for, but demanding and saying, you know, if you think back to particularly in a situation where you've got like an OB, it's like, I think we forget sometimes, like, well, you're employing these people. They work for you. Exactly. They're thinking about it in terms of like, you wanted to get really like, yep, there's this, I suppose, theme of OBs getting really worried, malpractice suits how things going to be like, well, actually you're like working for me and you didn't like perform your duties as I like asked them to be performed. Mm-hmm. It's sort of putting all the onus on the like, yeah, of course. It's just the lack of course. Oh, right. Well, it's something that you did at home. You gave yourself a fistula because. Right. <laughs> whatever the end of that sentence would be, but. Right. Right. So much backtracking and that we've gotten ourselves into a state where we're so, there's just so much fear. I think in the birth yeah. and a huge part of that is coming from people who are birthing who don't have the knowledge that they need to have but it's also coming from staff who are so like yeah. you can't do your best work if you're operating from fear right thinking like instead of the joy and the love and all the compassion of like oh I better not get sued 
How much time is that going to work every day thinking, oh, better not get sued? Right. You can't keep right. that. No. I mean, that's clearly what's wrong with all of our systems, right? Is the fear mm -hmm. and the, the control of the hospital, you know, all of that goes into the po politics of all of that, I think, mm -hmm. is a key reason why we have such issues. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I remember, was there a day or a time that things shifted for you through this process and you thought, I'm actually starting to feel more empowered? I'm actually starting to feel like me the person and not me the patient, me the mum, me the whatever. Right. Um, that's a good question. I would, I can't think of a maybe specific time other than I think I can, I, I think after the first surgery, after those first four months, when I had 90% of it healed, I, even though I was living with an, a lot of anxiety, I remember for a good amount of time feeling like more myself again, because I was, um, my body was generally back, you know, back to its original state, um, so to speak, whatever that is anymore after you have a baby. Um, it doesn't exist, but I know it doesn't. It's my it new, my new normal, I guess. Um, but I honestly, I don't think I felt fully physically released until that final surgery when my second son was six months old, honestly. Mm. I remember walking out of the six week post op check checkup getting the like a hundred percent it's healed <laughs> kind of and just walking out with tears you know running down my face my husband was waiting for me and my kids and just feeling free honestly i just felt suddenly free um and that doesn't mean that i still actually don't sort of live with stuff still um and in fact i just started seeing an emdr therapist um, because I do have some just residual things, I think, from living like for such a long time in that sort of a hypervigilant state. Um, but it, it took that final surgery, I think, to really help me feel free, um, physically from, I was, I just really felt like my, I, my body and my mind were like in bondage, um, mm. and, and that I just got hijacked completely um from just sort of like who I was honestly and I think um, a lot of people who have a traumatic birth in any way shape or form whether you know doesn't like it's in the eye of the beholder doesn't matter yes. what someone thinks it's traumatic but that but yeah sense of being hijacked is a good way to describe it because yeah. it is like it's people coming into your space and saying no nah, this is the way it's going to be now and you're vulnerable and that's not the time to be making decisions. And I no. think, you know, like a huge part of what we don't prepare people for is that it's not so much the, well, part of it is they're having the information and, but it's realizing that when you are vulnerable and you're birthing, that's not the time to sort of be going, Hmm, do I want to do this? Do is that the decision I want to make? Cause you're just not <clears throat> able to, I mean, you right. are, but you're not fully, you don't want to be in that part of your brain, like in right. decision-making mode. Right. Um, and when someone says, oh, if you don't do X, Y is going to happen and Y is always like dead baby. Yeah. It's never like, a, well, there's a 3% chance of this happening versus there's a 70% chance of this happening. Let's weigh out the risk. What do you want to do? Right. Mm. Yeah. It's, that's, you know, that's that threatening language that, is traumatic for so many women the threatening if you don't do this then this that's why i'm so thankful that we have doulas <laughs> right and sort of we need those advocates right with us kind of helping sort of guide us when things feel unclear and things feel i didn't have a doula i didn't i was like oh that's just for like granola like hippie people hippie. you know and i just was in that camp too from my first birth okay Exactly. A lot of us are. And now, of course, if you read the research, you know, it's not, you know, they're so, it's, it, they reduce trauma. Um, so, you know, just having more advocates, you know, on the ground for women who are in the birthing moments, Ooh. right? Yeah. Um, and nurses who can be advocates um, and push up against 
the powers, you know, that are in the hospital. The dynamic is so different. I think this is it. Like, I think we're not in a position where people are going to stop giving birth in hospital and we'll all yep. go back to having birth at home. I pretty much think that's not going to happen. If it does, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. I think. Right. So if we know that people are going to continue having births in hospital, then we have to acknowledge that while you're in their space, it is their space. As much as we try and do childbirth education that prepares people to say, no, you employ them, you take it over. It's a, it's a total imbalance of power. Right. Total yeah. imbalance of power. So I think for people sometimes who are in that, when I talk to people outside of birth workers who are like, mm, doors, mm, like you don't sort of get it. It's like you and maybe your partner and then you're outnumbered. And so whatever they say goes. Whereas if you've got that extra person in your corner to go, um, excuse me, yes. don't be talking to her like that. Do we really need to do that? And who aren't in that full primal, like waiting for your like brand new baby to be born so you just agree to anything. <laughs> it yeah. makes such a difference. Oh my goodness, it makes such a difference. Yeah, it would make such a difference. I, yeah, I wish I had had one of those people. <laughs> and even I think just having people who have the understanding that what they say to you in that space is sometimes even more powerful than what they do. Yes, that is a hundred percent true. I think more training around the phrases that are used and the way that that things are communicated um, in those moments is, is key um, to making, helping women feel like they have a choice and helping women feel supported. Mm-hmm. instead of you know the threatening and I don't even I don't know if doctors always realize that they seem that way you know I, I honestly don't know I would love to talk with more OBs and mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like in Australia but here it's really difficult to connect with OBs um, and just have conversations like this unless maybe you're like friends with them um, they don't come to a lot of the trainings that I've been to for you know for mood disorders and for birth trauma and so I don't really know where they're getting that additional input or if they are um but but they need to be hearing from women who have experienced these things they need to be hearing real stories um and I actually got a chance to go speak with a a group of midwives in training um, and share my story. And I felt like, um, it was, I, they actually all were so sweet and they all sent me these cards, um, afterwards. And they were like, this is going to stick with me because it's like a story that I can hold on to, you know? And it's like, we respond to stories. That's why you're doing this podcast, right? Like we respond to stories. They stick with us. And, you know, so how can we just use people's stories to change the system? You know, that seems to be, I don't know that feels the, like the best way. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, um, it's through the stories as well that it's the, it's the connecting of the things. And I think so much as we know of what happens is people birth their baby. Yeah. You disappear. You never yeah. see, you most likely never see some of these people who are in the most like significant intimate moment of your life again. Right. And there's all the different kind of things that, Go with that like we hear the stories of people who sometimes people kind of like it's not quite the right phrase I like but I don't kind of know what the better phrase would be but it's like they almost fall in love with their OB a little bit particularly yeah. with the language around they're like oh you saved me oh, oh it would have happened if you weren't here because like you're not able to kind of do that second level thinking of going hang on did you cause this like was that necessary without going through and doing all the things, sometimes people get really lost in the story of, oh my God, my baby nearly died. And if it wasn't for this person here who saved them, because if you go to the other part of the thinking, which is the like, hang on, maybe this was all unnecessary cascading stuff that happened, Mm -hmm. that's a much, much scarier thought. And so you leave, and unless I suppose you're going back to your hospital for some sort of support that they offer or you're going back for surgery or you're going back for a debrief, you never see these people ever again. Yeah. And so you don't know, I suppose, as a healthcare professional, the impact that your words, your actions have had on someone. Yes. So you just go away and go, oh, well, you know, another shift. 
potentially. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think that's mm -hmm. very true. Unless you're making, you know, I think there are times when people make, you know, try to, what's the word, you know, um, call, potentially have like a case against a doctor or something, you know, mm -hmm. there's those moments, right? But even those are really hard to prove and for people to litigate or, you know, that's probably the only time, you know, maybe something negative that they do might come back to them. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually did report, um, and I think it's good to talk about this too. I, I did report what happened um, as potential negligence because I just felt like I needed to do that. Mm -hmm. But I did, I do think it's really important for women to understand if you're going to do that, um, you might, you're going to be re-traumatized because you are going to have to repeat your story over and over and over again to strangers on the phone that work for whomever, the hospital, the insurance company. Um, so I don't even know that it's often worth it unless it's like, a you know, I, I don't think that mine was, I think I needed to go through the process for myself um, and nothing happened because there's no proof. Um, mm -hmm but it's just a it's something to think about for women when if they think that they want to make a complaint or um yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because it's something i've talked to clients about this a lot and i've supported clients through it but i don't think i've talked about it much on the podcast that's one for a future episode actually talking about the legal side of things but yeah that re-traumatizing process happens which is why if we think about i suppose similar but not so similar slightly different situation like with sexual assault mm -hmm. why people drop cases and why oh, they're yeah. employed and why it takes years and years and years because people yes. forget yes. about the man the first person you told what was their response and then sometimes police response mm -hmm. and again we've got police officers who are beautifully trained and empathic and compassionate but sometimes we don't. And so the story stops there because people get asked things like, well, what were you wearing and how many drinks did you have and what could you have done to contribute to this? And then it's like, well, bam, <laughs> you just re-traumatised all over again. And sometimes in cases where it's, you think, okay, well, at least I'll get some monetary compensation. I always think of, um, I won't go into too much detail, but there was a client I had once who was sexually assaulted by someone in a lot of power, like a lot, a lot, a lot of power. And she took him to court and in the end, after she paid for all her legal fees and everything else to sue this person, she had enough money to buy a washing machine. So she bought a washing machine, even though like this horrific, horrific thing had happened to her. And the story should have been, well, he should have gone to jail for X amount of time and he was in so much power and how could this happen? And there was all this media stuff. And in the end, yeah, she got some money, but by the time she paid for all the legal stuff and the extra therapy to go through the process of, legal proceedings which go on for years and years and years and years she bought a washing yeah. machine yeah like, right cool yeah was it worth it probably not which is not yeah. to say that it's not worth it for some people it absolutely gives them a sense of right. power back but right. i guess it's the cost benefit thing that you have yeah. to do yeah, I think that's just, just, it's, it's, again, it's just like, with, like, just knowing as much as you can know about, okay, if I go into this, what's that going to mean? You know, what's mm -hmm. that going to do to me? Um, it's just having people that can help you, help guide you, you know, that have been through it or that are aware um, that can help prevent further, you know, further damage, further trauma. Yeah. But it's, I think is what you're hinting at is, um, or at least what I'm trying to hint at very strongly is you almost need support that stage as well so absolutely if someone's been negligent you want to sue them you want to make a complaint go for it i would never say to someone no there's no point you can't do that but you need a next level of support through that process as i've talked about before like here i think it happens in the us I think it happens everywhere that sometimes what's called a birth debrief where you go back to the hospital and debrief i'm using embedded comments for people who are listening can't see it's not about that at all it's like oh do you want to make a complaint and really, really like yeah it's not even there's nothing psychological or therapeutic about it it's a complaint procedure it's a grievance procedure but it's deaf there's nothing therapeutic about it we wow team of people and then there's the person who was birthing and sometimes they don't bring in anyone they don't bring an advocate they don't bring in a 
court and it's kind of like, well, the records say this, you agreed that this happened and this happened and it's, yeah, it just gets like, how can we get rid of this person as soon as yeah. possible? Yeah. Wow. I, what happens for you? They do that with every birth in Australia or is that just for... No, I think it's just the, because there's inconsistency in what is a, de what is a debrief. I see. There's no like legal or other parameters around this is what we mean by this. It's not always like that. For some people it is. You go back and you talk to your midwife and you go over your notes and it is really supportive and compassionate. But for some people it's sitting in a room across the table from other people and it's like, okay, well, wow. it's, you know, that mode of you're not going to sue us. You're not going to sue us. Our legal representative is here. Do your worst. Mm -hmm. And you think about like, yeah, again, people who've just given birth, who are vulnerable. Yeah. How yeah. easy it is to just be licked away. Totally. I do like the idea of, and I don't know how many people do that. I don't hear about this often here in the States, but um, about going back to your mid or to your midwife or your OB and talking about the birth afterwards. I never hear about people that do that. And mm -hmm. imagine a world where people could do that and feel safe to express, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they don't want to go back to them, maybe because they're the perpetrator. Um, but I do think that there are times when Maybe it's not even the birth person, but sitting with someone who has the medical knowledge to explain to you, mm. to answer your questions, I think is really, can be very helpful. Mm. Um, and, and I wish that there was more of that. You know, it's, I don't know, again, what it's like there, but there's six weeks postpartum checkup and that's it. You're not seeing anyone before six weeks here. Um, and it's pretty quick. It's kind of like, check you, make sure you're good, move on to the next patient. So there's not a lot of time to process anything. Right. And if, and if providers were taking more time to do that, there might be, you know, more healing for people. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. There's yeah. just so much, I think there's just so much we can do or so much that can be done to change. That doesn't even have to be huge, you know, policy changes. Mm. It's just the people changes, you know, mm. Do you think for you, like even being offered after, so you've had the physical injury, which the medical community generally respond to a bit better because they just think trauma means injury. Had you right. even been offered, oh, okay, there's the option of surgery, there's the option of this, but also, hey, for your just well-being to talk to someone, would that have been helpful or do you think you would have in that space and time kind of gone, yep, don't know what you're talking about, don't need it? No, I definitely think I would have done it just because I was had, you know, I'm a therapist, so I'm very pro therapy. Not that every therapist would have responded that way, but I'm very much pro that and had been to therapy before. So I think I would have been like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm. You know, if someone had helped me do that, um, I think I totally would have been glad to go. Because <laughs> yeah. I often wonder, again, I'm, I don't know that there's like really clear parameters about when is counseling and support offered and when is it not because mm -hmm. um, again I think it's case by case hospital by hospital everybody's got a slightly different story depending on where they live and where they work and all that kind of thing so I think I wonder if that's part of the problem too so there's just there's no standards really yeah, I think it's kind of like maybe in six weeks you go back and you say something to your doctor and they might give you a name and that's it. Mm. Versus what if someone says to you when you're leaving the hospital, hey, you just went through, your birth was a little more traumatic or whatever. Let, we'll just send you with some name. You know, just someone even stating or confirming what you're already feeling. Mm that you know and not so you don't walk out being like was that okay was that not like mm. someone actually affirming that yeah that was rough you know um I think that would be really affirming for a lot of women and maybe they wouldn't take it right then but because mm. you know sometimes when we're just out of birth we're not <laughs> we don't even we can't even process what happened for a while um there's a lot of pamphlets like depending on where you go oh my gosh so many <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I had the perinatal support pamphlet or the, um, yeah, the one that I now volunteer with. I never saw it. I never looked at it. Um, it wasn't until I think I just spoke with, you know, it, it, I think it really is about person to person contact. Mm. Um, I think that's what helps. I mean, I just noticed that when I talk to women 
all the time on the warm line. As soon as I just say like, it makes total sense why you're feeling it. As soon as I affirm their experience and yeah, I've been there too. It's like, you can just hear the sort of relief and you can hear the sort of like, wow, someone actually gets me and I'm not crazy. And like, what, you know, my experience is not crazy. Um, it's just take, yeah, contact. Mm. Gosh, it just, it's always such common sense stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm always talking to people about, and yet it's the like, okay, so why isn't this happening? Why is it so hard? But I think this is part of it is that the more people that you talk to, the more conversations you have, the more stories, the more people will kind of go, yep, all right, this is something I can do. And I, it, again, I always say, like, you don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to nope. be. You just have to be someone there who cares. Yep. You yep. can say, that sucked. Do you want to talk about it? I'm here. Mm -hmm. Without, like, falling into all the things that people fall into. And some of that is temperament and personality. And I do think a huge part of it can actually be taught. Like, it's in there. But some people struggle with the, I wasn't taught how to like do any of this. So I don't know. So they just default to things that sometimes are not helpful. You know, the cliches and the kind of, you know, fobbing things off. And it's like, and I'm sure, again, it's the case of sometimes people go home later or they drive home and they go, oh, my God, why did I say that to that woman? That wasn't like the most helpful thing to say. And again, because she doesn't have the time or the energy or the resources to ring her up and go, hang on, I said something to you earlier today. It wasn't what right. I said today. Right. It, it gets left as this, ah, oh, well, probably shouldn't have said that. Don't beat yourself up about it. But then that could impact someone for the rest of their life. Yeah. I often think about yeah. that too, how we're kind of like so split between like, oh, no, never going to see these people again. What difference it would make if someone said, oh, I didn't mean to say that. That wasn't like, I just didn't know what to say. Right? Yeah. I didn't know what to say because I wasn't trained. These things happen so, 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 so often. And that there isn't a perfect thing to say. It's not. It's just a communication, as you say, of like, I hear you, I see you. Yeah. You know, compassion. Yeah, it's true. Mm. Where can people find you, work with you if they want to? If they're going, uh, hang on, I know, I'm another person who's not like a 13-year-old girl in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Not what you want poster girl for, I know. What's that? You didn't want to be the poster girl for like fistula happens to people who are not. I mean, you know, I... I didn't want to be, but here I am, right? And then, you know, I am happy to talk with anyone, you know. Um, I, I mean, they can reach me. I'm on Instagram, Kristen Hill. That's just my handle. Um, and an email, you know. Um, should I say all that stuff now? <laughs> I usually um, put it in the show notes because I figure people probably not. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't listen to podcasts and then like furiously scribble stuff. I just wait. No, me either. Underneath, yeah. so I don't know. I think it's like maybe one of those old throwbacks to like, no, we've got to say it all now because otherwise you're going right. to miss. So I don't know. When you think about it, I never think. I don't think people need to say all that stuff, but I will definitely yeah. put it in. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have a website, but um, for for counseling, but I'm actually kind of transitioning. I think out of. I'm actually reimagining what my work world is going to look like. How exciting and terrifying. Exciting. Yeah, I'm just not, I, I want to branch out from sort of traditional one-to-one -one therapy, but I still mm -hmm. want to support, be in a supportive role. Um, and I really like, I've done a lot of couples therapy and I, I like the idea of, of working with the couple um, either to process a, tra a traumatic birth um, and doing it in their homes, um, and also being an advocate and sort of a educator of sorts um, yeah. for prevention. So I don't really know what that's all going to look like, awesome. uh, but I just am excited to keep exploring and trying to figure out specifically what it's going to be. Mm. Um, and you know, that's you know, if there's anything, no, I didn't want to be the fistula person, <laughs> but. <laughs> I think you know this too, probably that when you have something traumatic that happens, it connects you with hum your humanity in mm -hmm. such a deep way to suffering, you know, and what mm -hmm. that means to really suffer. 
and I don't think we can really fully live a human life without knowing what it feels like to suffer. Oh, um, no way. No way. Right. So I think as much as it's horrible, I think we all suffer in various ways, right? And so if nothing else, it connected me to that, which I think makes me better at, you know, at, at working with people and, and understanding mm -hmm. their suffering. And so I'm thankful for that, you know, that that is sort of the outcome you know, the positive outcome of yeah. what I do. Um, so, yeah. And on that, I guess I'm just thinking about you again being the poster girl. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any resources, books, articles, anything that you found particularly helpful that made you feel less like an isolated anomaly? Because as I said, I know people will hear fistula and they'll think Karen, Catherine Hamlin, they're going to think Africa, which might not be, you know, I'm always for people finding whatever resources fit for them. Was there anything that made you kind of feel less ostracized, alone? Yeah, um, there's a Facebook group um, for women with fistulas. Um, I, I'm not on it anymore because after a while it was almost like too much to kind of read mm -hmm. everything. But at first it was really helpful to kind of direct me on what kind of doctor, what kind of surgery, you know, all the kind mm -hmm. of questions I needed to ask and know. Um, and that was, you know, if you, if you try to go online otherwise and search for articles that relate to like, you know, not third world, third world countries and, and sort of this issue, it's very difficult to find. Mm, that's what I was thinking. That was my guess, which is why I asked. Cause I'm thinking, yeah, I don't actually don't remember even coming across anything even as I've like learned about it and trained in it, it's very much kind of like, oh, yep, there's obstetric injuries and then there's like the severe stuff, but there's definitely this attitude of that only happens like over there. Right. <laughs> or over there is. Yeah, mm. it's true. There's just not a lot. I mean, I've, I've, I, I remember spending many, many late nights trying to find research and articles and there's very few and most of them, the research are inconclusive in terms of like what's the best approach and you know mm -hmm. kind of how to no one's talking about except for in these Facebook groups I would say sort of the residual effects of living with something like that and I think people with fourth degree tears with who experience incontinence would can relate also to that feeling mm -hmm. of like living with this injury in your body where you don't know what's going to happen day to day you know and there's shame and there's yeah. embarrassment and um fear of will it ever be fixed you know and no one's talking about you know that's not stuff that you're reading about in an article or um people are talking about openly um so i would just encourage anyone who has like a fourth degree tear or incontinence or a fistula to search for those private groups um because that's where you're going to find that support and those conversations um and of course i'm happy to talk with anyone also Mm, I think that's going to be so helpful because you'd never like no one's ever going to plan for this but you mark my words at some stage there's going to be a doula a midwife someone who's listened to that going ah I remember yeah what I'm talking yeah. about I mean I hope so I, I that's my goal is like okay I went through this insane amount of craziness and I, I just I hope that something which is why I wanted to talk to you right something I say can help someone else that's all yeah. prevent and I would also like to add that I've learned since learned that one a pro, a preventative action that could be taken if you give birth to a baby that's large, have an intervention like a vacuum or forceps, um, maybe are have have had an epidural or birthing pushing for a super super long time where that kind of weakens all that tissue and muscle. Mm -hmm. Doctors can opt to take you into a surgical room and do a very um, a detailed inspection mm. of that entire area in like with surgical lighting and everything yeah and they potentially could find things that they could miss i don't know how they how they repair tears um and i'll show you if that's like already stuff what they do but in my case they didn't do that i was just in the delivery room and i just thought man if i had known about that maybe i would have asked that i don't know or maybe someone else could have said hey those three things happened to her big baby intervention, you know, forceps and epidural, you know, maybe let's take a better look, you know, mm. 
And I just want anyone to people to know that, that they can ask for that, that you can ask for um, your doctor to do that. If you have any fear around severe yeah. tears. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually, because you're making me think back to my first birth when I had, I actually had, an, so I had an internal tear. So I've told you the story before, but my little darling pulled out a bit of my vaginal wall. But there was no, at first glance, mm -hmm. any indication that anything was wrong. And I remember my OB saying to me the next day, she said, I'm so sorry. It's just a freaky thing that happened and everything looked fine. And again, your first time mum, you kind of don't really know. Okay. But then it was a certain point at which I like felt in my bones. I'm like, there's something not right. There's something not right. And I think right. trusting that you are the expert in your body. Someone else yeah. can look, have the surgical yeah. knowledge and the experience and look and say, it looks fine. But it's similar to breastfeeding. When someone looks and says, oh, it looks right. Your attachment looks right. You're the expert on your body. And if you feel pain, discomfort, whatever you want, you can ask for, yeah. I want more. Don't just... Yeah feel like, oh, you're making a fuss. And I know that happens, and there's so many stories that we've all heard of of people being told, oh, stop making a fuss, stop making a big deal, it's not that bad, take a Panadol, <laughs> might be. But that trusting that sense that you know your body and if something doesn't feel right, to stand yes. up for yourself. Yes, I think that's a great point to make, that you, if you don't feel right, you just speak up, and who cares what anyone else thinks? <laughs> like. Honestly, mm. um, I remember the day after when I was in the hospital, I had these weird sensations and, and I just remember thinking that must be normal. And I never said anything mm. and talking to my OB, the OB that delivered my second son years later, she's like, that doesn't sound normal. Mm. But she said, she said, if you would have told any of the nurses there though, what happened, they probably still would have brushed it aside. Right. Cause it's almost like anything and everything under the sun is normal after you've had a baby because everything's kind of crazy down there. So again, I don't know what would have happened, but, but trust your gut. If something feels wrong, ask somebody, you know, I think that's such a good point to encourage new mothers. Oh, even just, I suppose if we think about the concept of pain and what we know about pain, whether you should be in this amount of pain or that amount of pain, like yeah. whose guess is that if you are in excruciating pain, even if you just had a paper cut, that's relevant because it says that your body's in distress. Mm -hmm. And we don't want bodies in distress when we're birthing and just after we've given birth. So that yep. is, yeah, I will never kind of get the whole thing where people are like, oh, stop complaining about being in pain. I'm like, pain is a useful piece of information. Because yep. even if you're not objectively supposed to be in pain, it's telling you that someone's stressed. And if they're stressed, mm -hmm. that's something we can do something about, hopefully. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I am so, so, so grateful, like beyond that you'll ever know that you were willing to talk about that because I know it wasn't easy. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I just feel, I feel grateful to have kind of an opportunity to do it. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's not easy to talk about, but at the same time, I know it could help someone, you know, so mm. it, it feels worth and I it. I think it kind of gets, a little easier every time. I mean, different things come up, I imagine. Yeah. And I guess this is the thing with trauma. Like, it's never going to be where you talk about it and you feel amazing and you feel wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it sort of gets to a point where you're like, okay, I can talk about it and not feel like I'm going to fall apart. Right. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely at that place. I can, I yeah. can, yeah, I feel okay. Yeah. So that feels good. Yeah. And I think that muscle memory for when you hear someone else say that and you see them and you kind of put yourself in the picture and go, okay, yeah, this could get better. Yes. This is more manageable. This is not a life yeah. sentence. Right. Yeah. That is going to do wonders for someone. Well, hopefully multiple someones. Sure. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I know it is. Hope is a doing word. My hope is that warm, empathic, intuitive workers will stay in birth. But geez, we need to do something. Some sort of activation. Like, do something after listening to this. It's your decision what you're doing is going to be, but do something. If you would like to connect with Kristen, you can go to kristenhilltherapy.com and she's at Kristen Hill on Instagram. 
Resources, everything mentioned in this podcast will be on my website, drerin.com.au. And if you're feeling burnt out, you've got compassion fatigue, you're really starting to wonder how you're going to keep doing this, giving compassion to other people and giving nothing to yourself. Hello, let's talk. If you also want to sign up for updates on the Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers course, you can do that by reaching out to me, drerin.com.au or at drerinbell on Instagram. The course is so nearly, so nearly finished, but it's like two years in the making. It's been like an elephant baby gestation and I'm so ready to push it out into the world, but you know, it's not done cooking yet. <laughs> it will be soon. Anyway, thank you for making the time for yourself to feel uncomfortable, grow, learn, self-educate. I just love it. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak my passions and do my soul work. And if you're still here listening, again, please, can you go to Apple? Just click the buttons, click the stars. It helps push the podcast up so more other people can find it. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day.